For more than six months now, Russia has served as a crutch for the American imagination. It used to explain how Trump could have happened to us, and it is also called upon to give us hope. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Intercepted, The Ezra Klein Show, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, On the Media, The Zero Hour, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Young Turks. Because the two of you are uh, have a lot more experience than I do in the world of intelligence, I want to I want to throw at you something that is uh, to me the the biggest lingering question about the uh, the Russian affair, uh, so to speak. The question I have for you guys is this: Given that we know that the same cell or the same actors that were using the same Bitly link and and the same tools and all the forensics indicates this, we're going after opponents of Vladimir Putin outside of the United States, within Russia, journalists, NGOs, in Ukraine, in other countries around the world. But in the United States, it wasn't and I and this is this is the, the point I'm getting at. It wasn't this like surgical uh you know strike on the DNC's emails. It wasn't a surgical strike on John Podesta's Gmail account. These hackers were targeting swaths of people that were influencers in the United States that were connected to the military or connected to intelligence. And 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 so to me, the idea that you say, well, the intent of the hack was to influence the election, I, I don't believe we've seen evidence to back that up. I think there's four scenarios and you can rule out a couple really quick. On the Trump side, what he would tell you is he's just a guy who likes Russian issues and believes very similar to them. On the other end is the Manchurian candidate. He's picked, selected, and is doing the bidding of Putin. I don't think the links are there to come to that conclusion. In the middle, though, you've got two scenarios. One, the useful idiot scenario. He's a guy that the Russians saw picking an agenda that waffles back and forth and is not, as we've seen now, very much on top of national security issues. So you can just run with him. And so you just promote him, you know, and you tear down other opponents to him. And then there's the compromise scenario. Is he really just compromised? And he doesn't have much choice. I think that there's only two things that can really flush that out as we move forward. And, and if an investigation moves forward, there's a special prosecutor. What they ultimately have to determine is in the useful idiot scenario, he's going to be surrounded by a bunch of advisors that are compromised, influence paid for by the Russian government. And we already are seeing some signals of that. Trump is notorious for bringing people on as allies in business or in government that he doesn't really know very well and jettisoning them just as quickly. So it, I think it's highly probable that Russia could influence these key political figures around him to come help mold his mind, push him towards Russian positions, whether he knows them or not. The other scenario is compromise. Are, are the claims of St. Petersburg and financial compromise, are they there? I, that takes a deep investigation. And we we know less about this president's taxes and businesses than any president in the history of mankind. If I had to guess right now, I think it's the useful idiot surrounded by Russian influence agents. You know, there's three or four people that appears were being investigated or looked at. They had sway with the president at different times. You know, uh, Trump walked up and cited Sputnik News fake story about a Podesta email in Benghazi and dropped it on the ground. If the GOP wants to raise that as a talking point against her, it is legitimate. 
In other words, he's now admitting that they could have done something about Benghazi. This just came out a little while ago. Who gave that to him? Well, it had to be somebody that was tightly woven into the influence system of Russia. Now, is that Trump doing that himself? Well, you can't say that because we've seen how many conspiracies he falls for on Twitter. So he could equally fall for the influence of a nation state who just strategically puts a few people around him for a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it could be a very cheap effort. So I don't think it's this Manchurian candidate. And in fact, I think what will disprove the Manchurian candidate scenario is as soon as Trump and this administration, which now has McMaster, Mattis, uh, Kelly, a lot of these people in there, a huge push now from the Republican Congress that's anti-Russian. As soon as they go against Russia, whether it's in Syria or Ukraine or one of these Eastern European countries, when you see the Russians pivot their influence operation against Trump, then you'll know he's not the Manchurian candidate scenario. It's somewhere in between. a theory that Trump – well, this part isn't a theory. The <laughs> Trump campaign was made up of people who were very inexperienced in national politics, who are fringe figures, who didn't know sort of – and I use this term ironically, you know, the rules. They didn't quite understand what carried what weight. Um, and when you're doing presidential politics and, and you don't really think you're going to win but you're running all around and you're busy – uh, you, you do a lot of horse trading with a lot of different groups. You go to the Border Patrol Guards Union and you talk to them about what they want and in return you get some things you want. You talk to the Heritage Foundation. You talk to the Chamber of Commerce. You talk to um, the Federalist Society. They say, hey, like, you know, you got to choose a Supreme Court justice off of this list. You say, sure, give me the list. I'm, I'm happy to look at it. Um, and, and then you release it. So, you know, you're coming into this pretty, pretty new. And it's pretty normal that somebody comes to you and says, Hey, we can help you out. We're a, we're a super PAC. Um, you know, or we're connected to super PACs, right? And in, in the sort of shadowy way these things work, or we are a big interest group. We've got some oppo on the other side, or we've got some field troops to deploy into, into, you know, Ohio, or we've got some money to spend on independent expenditures, you know, but, but give us a little something here. And, you know, Trump is all these people who sort of idiosyncratically are connected to Russia, um, Manafort and others. And Russia idiosyncratically has a bunch of oppo on the Clinton campaign. And, you know, just a relationship that feels normal to people at the time starts up. It's nobody's top agenda item collude with the Russians. Uh, it was not, did not feel, you know, maybe they said, yeah, if you're going to release this oppo, it'd be great if you started doing it on the first day of the Democratic convention. Um, and that didn't seem like a big deal to anybody. And then later on, it turns out that that isn't like, talking with the Heritage Foundation, that that isn't like talking with the Chamber of Commerce, that that isn't like talking with the Border Patrol Guards Union, that that is getting tapped by those conversations or are getting watched by the American intelligence services, that when you say Trump campaign colludes with Russia, that reads very different than Trump campaign colludes with the business roundtable. And all of a sudden, now you've got this problem because it didn't you didn't realize quite what you were doing, but you did it. <laughs> 
And now you somehow have to defend it. And now people know more than you realize they knew. And, and it's all on the level of scrutiny that, that you didn't quite realize you had. And so I feel like there's a way for collusion to have emerged. We really, I'm not sure that's, I don't think that's illegal necessarily, by the way, but collusion that really would look bad, that really would be problematic to have been there. But they weren't trying to have some secret plan with Russia. They just thought this was how politics worked because they were doing it with tons of other groups at all times. I think you're exactly right. Oh, well, good. Podcast over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I'd I'd add a couple couple of other variables, right? Um, Some of these people come from business where you don't draw the same kind of line between dealing with, you know, an American wholesaler and a Chinese wholesaler. They feel pretty much like the same kinds of contacts. So I think in that sense, your, uh, your analogy between, you know, the, the Russian agents and um, the policeman's union is exactly right. They really don't know the difference and they can't imagine the kind of public scrutiny that, that they would come in for. But one other idea that I would add to this is that there is also sort of an equal and opposite reaction, right? Which is that when the first kind of wave of public scrutiny uh, came in, we saw a lot of demonization and you know, just excitement over contexts that were actually normal. There's nothing strange about Trump campaign people talking to the Russian ambassador during the Republican National Convention. Nothing strange about it, right? So then they begin to dissemble because they don't know where they can sort of stand up and say, yeah, we talked to the Russian ambassador at a cocktail party. So what? Like, so did everybody else ever. So they begin to dissemble because they don't have their bearings. So in the same way that they don't know what kind of contexts are going to look terrible under the light of political scrutiny, they also don't realize what shouldn't look terrible. And when information about contacts with, with any Russian representatives became toxic, they had no way to resist. And so they, uh, the cover-up became worse than the crime in some cases, I think. But I want to jump to, you know, this idea of collusion and what we actually sort of the, the meaning that we invested it with because I think one thing that, that gets lost in the conversation is the actual theory of how Russia influenced the election. The theory that's advanced by the intelligence agencies in the, in the joint report issued in December was that Russia influenced the election by influencing American public opinion. And again, that's not illegal. I'm not even sure that's wrong. Put forth the argument that it is wrong to influence another country's public opinion and I will argue with you because I think it happens all the time. And I think that other countries have a legitimate interest in the outcome of the American election. Well, could I push you a little bit on that? Sure. I agree with the the broad point you're making there, right? I mean, Barack Obama went to England and tried to push on Brexit, right? And failed, but but tried to argue that Brexit was a bad idea. But mechanically, the the claim here is that Russia broke into private computer files, hacked them out, and then released them as stolen documents. Now, the media did not cover itself in glory on this, and right, and, and even Vox, right, which I think we were going, you know, we did not think was good, but you know, we got these documents and you know looked at the WikiLeaks releases. So, I'm not saying that they didn't have their their willing public conspirators on this side at all, but it does feel to me that committing what is functionally 
a cybersecurity attack to release secret documents to influence opinion is different than the sort of normal mechanisms by which, you know, Angela Merkel comes and gives a speech or gives an interview to an American paper or something. Oh, absolutely. Yes. But I mean, the hacking is despicable and the leaking is despicable. And to my mind, the publishing of the products of the leaking and the hacking is also no great shakes and should not be done. You know, those kinds of documents as a rule, should be treated as fruit of a poison tree until you know there's a compelling argument made in the opposite direction. But those are sort of discrete interventions. And what ultimately influenced the outcome of the election was the change in public opinion, right, in American public opinion. So I'm not trying to excuse Russian behavior by any means, right? You know, I mean, far be it for me to excuse any Russian behavior, actually. But what we end up with in the end, right, is understanding that American public opinion was influenced and coming back to this idea that Trump is not a mature and candidate uh, unless we can prove you know, high-level collusion with strategic intent. And I just don't think that that's there. Noam Chomsky, I'd like to ask you about something that's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, obviously, all the cable channels, that's all they talk about these days, is the, is the whole situation of uh, Russia's supposed intervention in American elections uh, uh, for a country that's intervened in so many uh, governments and so many elections around the world. That's kind of a strange topic. But I know you've referred to this as a joke. Uh, could you uh, give us your view on what's happening and, and why there's so much emphasis on this particular issue? Pretty remarkable fact that, uh, first of all, it is a joke. Uh, most Half of the world is cracking up in laughter. Uh, the United States doesn't just interfere in elections. It uh, overthrows governments it doesn't like, uh, uh, institutes military dictatorships. Uh, simply in the case of Russia alone, it's the least of it. Uh, the U.S. government under Clinton uh, intervened quite blatantly and openly. They didn't try to conceal it to get their man Yeltsin in, uh, in all sorts of ways. So this, as I say, the, uh, it's, it's considered, it's turning the United States again into a laughingstock in the world. So why are the Democrats focusing on this? In fact, why are they focusing so much attention on the one element of Trump's programs which is fairly reasonable. Uh, the one ray of light in this gloom uh, trying to reduce tensions with Russia. That's, the tensions on the Russian border are extremely serious. Uh, they could escalate to a major terminal war. Uh, efforts to try to reduce them uh, are, should be welcomed. As a couple of days ago, the former uh, a U.S. ambassador to Russia, Jack Matlock, came out and said he just can't believe that uh, so much attention is being paid to apparent efforts by the incoming administration to uh, establish connections with Russia. He said, sure, that's just what they ought to be doing. So meanwhile, this 
one topic is the primary locus of concern and, uh, and uh, 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 critique, while meanwhile the policies are proceeding step by step, uh, which are extremely destructive and harmful. So, you know, yeah, maybe the Russians tried to interfere in the election. That's not a major issue. Um, maybe the uh, people on the Trump campaign were talking to the Russians. Well, okay, Can't, not, not, not a major point, certainly uh, less than is being done constantly. Uh, and it is a kind of a paradox, I think, that the one issue that seems to uh, inflame uh, the democratic opposition is the one thing that has some justification and uh, um, um, reasonable aspects to it. Well, of course, um, because the Democrats feel that that's the reason, somehow, that they lost the election. Interesting that James Comey this week said he is investigating uh, Trump uh, campaign collusion with Russia, when it was Comey himself who could have— um, might well have been um, partly responsible for Hillary Clinton's defeat when he said that he was investigating her, while we now have learned, at the same time, he was investigating Donald Trump, but never actually said that. Well, you can understand why the uh, Democratic uh, Party managers uh, want to uh, try to find some blame for the fact, uh, for the way they utterly mishandled the election and uh, blew uh, perfect opportunity to uh, win, hand it over to the opposition. But that's hardly a justification for uh, allowing the Trump policies to slide by quietly, uh, many of them not only harmful to the population, but extremely destructive, like the climate change policies. And meanwhile, focus on one thing that could become a step forward if it was adjusted to move towards serious efforts to reduce growing and dangerous tensions right on the Russian border, where they could blow up. Uh, NATO maneuvers are taking place uh, hundreds of yards from the Russian border. The uh, Russian uh, uh, jet planes are buzzing American planes. Uh, this is something could get out of hand very easily. Both sides, are, meanwhile, are uh, building up their uh, uh, military forces, uh, adding uh, the U.S. Uh, is uh, in, uh, one thing that the Russians are very much concerned about is the so-called anti-ballistic uh, uh, missile uh, installation that the U.S. is establishing uh, near the Russian border, uh, allegedly to uh, uh, protect uh, Europe from non-existent uh, Iranian missiles. Nobody seriously believes that. Uh, this is a uh, understood to be a first strike threat. These are serious issues. Uh, people like uh, William Perry, the, who has a distinguished career and is a nuclear strategist uh, and is no alarmist at all, is saying that we're back to the this is one of the worst moments of the Cold War, if not worse. That's really serious. And efforts to try to calm that down would be very welcome. And we should bear in mind it's the Russian border. It's not the Mexican border. There's no Warsaw Pact maneuvers uh, going on in Mexico. And that's a border that uh, the Russians are um, quite uh, reasonably sensitive about. And they've practically been destroyed several times last century right through that region. 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Here is um, Burr. Starting off, he's the uh, committee chairperson of the Intelligence Committee. Um, there was a lot of kerfuffle that Comey was going to the Intelligence Committee as opposed to the judicial, uh, judiciary. But um, I think this is because Comey feels more comfortable talking about the counter-espionage part of this investigation than the criminal investigation. And these guys are more read in. I also think he probably has more faith in Burr, particularly after this hearing. Here is uh, Burr asking Comey about the any doubt in terms of the Russian interference. Do you have any doubt that Russia attempted to interfere in the 2016 elections? None. Do you have any doubt that the Russian government was behind the intrusions in the DNC and the DCCC systems and the subsequent leaks of that information? No, no doubt. Do you have any doubt that the Russian government was behind the cyber intrusion into state voter files? No. Do you have any doubt that officials of the Russian government were fully aware of these activities? No doubt. Are you confident that no votes cast in the 2016 presidential election were altered? I'm confident. By the time when I left as director, I'd seen no indication of that whatsoever. Director Comey, did the president at any time ask you to stop the FBI investigation into Russian involvement in the 2016 U.S. elections? Not to my understanding, no. Did any individual working for this administration, including the Justice Department, ask you to stop the Russian investigation? No. Okay, so there's a couple of things here. One, he um, he is clear that he was not asked to stop the broader Russian interference uh, investigation. Uh, later in the testimony, he'll talk about it. He specifically thought that the president had asked him to stop the Flynn testimony. But I think this is the most most definitive statement that we've had and the greatest piece of evidence that we have had that Russia attempted to influence the election that Russia Russia what did he call it exfiltrate did uh voter files 
Uh, he seems to think that it didn't necessarily have any impact on the election, which um, I think goes a long way to saying, like, this is not why Hillary Clinton lost. Although, you know, he's no expert, but, you know, you take it. it this is his perception, at least in terms of the votes themselves. Um, but you to believe that the whole Russia attempted to do this and people, different people can have different opinions as to whether or not this is, you know, as earth shattering as it's made out to be personally, I don't find it that earth shattering. We engage in this type of, of, um, of counter, uh, you know, psyops and more to influence elections. We have done that consistently for, I don't know, a hundred and some odd years. Maybe Matt knows of an instance prior to that. Um, so I don't find it so, so uh, earth shattering that they did this. But I will say it's quite clear, unless you think Comey is got up there and perjured himself with a um, a complete, uh, you know, a Department of Justice apparatus that would do anything to find that he has perjured himself at this point. And uh, two parties, uh, I mean, two um, uh, a party control of the House and the Senate who would do anything to find that he perjured himself. Unless you think that he did that. For, I guess, just a intense desire for us to get into a war with russia or perhaps maybe the nail on the head. Uh, i mean it's time to sort of accept the premise that russia did this you can then say look it's not that big of a deal or it's not why she lost or whatever but if you're still of the mind that this whole thing about russia attempting to interfere and actually, in some instances, at least getting voter files for whatever worth that may or may not be uh, is completely made up and fictionalized. I think it's time to move past that. For some liberals fearing a Trump presidency gone completely rogue, the focus has narrowed to a single obsession, the Russia affair. It's a story of intrigue and shifting alliances, lofted by slippery facts from anonymous intelligence sources. And that's sent some eager news consumers to some less than reliable places as they try to piece together the plot. Sources with links to the intelligence community say it is believed that Carter Page went to Moscow in early July, carrying with him a pre-recorded tape of Donald Trump offering to change American policy if he were to be elected, to make it more favorable to Putin. That's Keith Olbermann quoting Louise Mensch, former conservative British parliamentarian, current anti-Trump, anti-Russia Twitter conspiracy theorist. You've also claimed that President Putin had Andrew Breitbart murdered 
to pave the way for Steve Bannon. No, first of all, I haven't. And no matter how many times people say this, it's not going to be true. I said on Twitter in a tweet, I believe that to be the case about the murder of Andrew Breitbart. Well, that's what I just said. Charlatan, opportunist, or true believer, we don't know what's driving Mensch to tell her tales, and she didn't respond to our invitations to come on to the show. But it's clear that her brand of journalism adds a new layer of unreality to an already confounding information landscape. Zach Beecham is a senior reporter for Vox who recently wrote about how Democrats are falling for fake news about Russia. Zach, welcome to On the Media. Oh, I'm so happy to be on. Okay, so a blog called patrobotics.com reported that a sealed indictment had been granted against Donald Trump and that the indictment is intended by the FBI and Justice Department to form the basis of Mr. Trump's impeachment. That's an explosive scoop, if true. Yeah. <laughs> Patrobotics is the blog of a former British parliamentarian from the Conservative Party and also romance novelist, Louise Mensch. She was a right-wing commentator. But since the Trump-Russia scandal began, Mensch has refashioned herself into a sort of citizen journalist telling the truth about Trump and Russia when the mainstream media won't. The problem is that it doesn't seem like anything she's saying is true. But she did have one true story, and that could potentially lend legitimacy to many of her stories. That's right. She reported that the FBI had a warrant for communications between a Russian bank and the Trump organization. She was right that there was a warrant, which most people weren't reporting. And she has made some allies in her sort of more conspiratorial quest. John Schindler, a former NSA agent and professor at the Naval War College who got caught up in a sex scandal when he was there and resigned. And you have Claude Taylor, who said he had some unspecified position in the Bill Clinton administration and now is a D.C. area photographer. And so you've got the three of them, Louise Mensch, Claude Taylor, John Schindler. They're the driving force behind what you call the Russosphere. That's right. The Russia sphere formed entirely on Twitter. These three people communicating with each other and hundreds and thousands of fans. Mensch has nearly 300,000 Twitter followers. Schindler, not that many fewer. And Taylor, close to 170,000. And the three of them are constantly talking about these conspiracy theories. Notions like Russia funded the protests in Ferguson or that Paul Ryan, Trump, and Mike Pence are all going to go down and you're going to get President Orrin Hatch. Those are actual things I've seen people in this sphere say, things they couldn't possibly know and don't seem to be backed up by any real evidence. And you suggest that the Russia sphere doesn't have one unified, worked-out theory. It seems to be more of a frame in which any number of things can fit? Yeah. It's a way of approaching the world where you assume that whatever is going on is best explained by Russia manipulating it behind the scenes. Or whatever is happening with Trump, it's because of his collusion with Russia. Or whatever's happening with the FBI investigation, it's always about to get more intense and more aggressive. In your piece... You mentioned many stories that seem to fit into this Russia frame, even Anthony Weiner. That's right. Weiner pled guilty to charges of 
sexing with a minor. So Mensch published a story saying there was no 15-year-old girl, that this was part of a hacking group called Crackers with Attitude working with the Russians to ensnare Anthony Weiner. So then the emails could be exposed, which would then embarrass Hillary and torpedo her campaign. While the three people you write about are all anti-Trumpers, they're not all liberal. So is this based on ideology or is it based on hating Trump? For Mensch, Schindler, Taylor, those people, there's sort of an ideology, right? They, they are unified in their sense that Russia is out to get the United States and that Trump is their pawn, if not their willing accomplice. But the people who like them don't have these kinds of worked out ideological ideas. They just really hate Trump. And these ideas about Russia provide them with a sense of certainty about the president that they crave. Why do you think liberals are so receptive to this brand of fake news? It's really interesting. During the Obama years, you saw a lot of conspiracy theories on the right flourish, birtherism being the best-known example, but also conspiracies that Obama was rigging economic data, right? And you saw this spread everywhere among conservatives. Now, part of that was that the conservative media was quite happy to amplify a lot of these ideas. You saw them on Fox News and on Breitbart, The Daily Caller, other things with low journalistic standards. But it was also because when people are out of power— they are inclined to blame problems in the world on the people in power. One expert I spoke to on political misinformation said that conspiracy theories were a weapon of the weak. They were a way to understand and make sense out of the world when it doesn't seem to make sense to you or seems hostile to you. You offered a fascinating study by a researcher at Yale named Dan Kahan about a math problem. Would you describe that? So they gave them a kind of tricky math problem. It was a word problem. And some people got questions phrased in terms of the success of a skincare product and actually clearing up your skin. Other people got the question phrased in terms of the success of gun control legislation, whether or not it actually reduced crime and violence. For the people who got the skincare question, Democrats and Republicans were equally likely to get it right and wrong. But when you gave it in terms of a politically loaded issue like gun control, people were much more likely to get the answer that their partisan interests told them they should get. So even though Democrats and Republicans seem to have the same math abilities, <laughs> their partisanship overrode their ability to do basic mathematical reasoning. It's just remarkable. You referenced the one bright spot in your analysis – you note that the absence of a Breitbart of the left has made it harder for these theories to gain traction. They can't keep it in front of people, at least on cable news, but do they even really need cable news? I think they do if they want to get bigger. Twitter is an inherently limited platform because following it and making sense of it requires a lot of attention. So they try these blogs, which actually do quite well. One Mensch story was shared 50,000 times on Facebook. But even that is only going to get you access to a limited audience without the full weight of a large organization behind you. They don't have that right now. Instead, they need mainstream media validators or other validators who are in good standing with a liberal audience. So that could be cable news. It could be newspapers. It could be websites that liberals like to read. It could be celebrities even that are well-regarded in the liberal community. 
they've gotten some notable people to back them up. That's right. The New York Times reached out to Mensch for an op-ed, and then former DNC chairwoman Donna Brazil tweeted out the story and then thanked Mensch for good journalism. There's another current DNC official that retweeted one of her tweets as if it was a legitimate scoop, but they're relatively isolated incidents. It's more right now that it is accidentally seeping into the mainstream. This stuff, though, you need to inoculate against it to prevent it from becoming part of an established media culture. Okay, so how do you do that? What is the role that the media can play in reining in this misinformation? The Democrats, as an institution, can do a lot by denouncing these people or just ignoring them. The media should cast light on these people. They should say they don't appear to have any evidence validating their beliefs, especially media that's trusted by liberal audiences. They kind of have an obligation to take a look at the more unsavory parts of the liberal media sphere that are starting to grow up in the Trump era. You wrote that all this could discredit the real Russia investigation, which I can totally see. You also wrote that it risks polluting and degrading the Democratic Party. And you said that's what happened to the Republicans, which resulted in the election of Trump. Explain, though, how it pollutes the party. One of the professors I spoke to for this piece said one of the greatest failures of the Republican Party was not pushing back more against the conspiracy theories like birtherism that eventually took over the party. When lots of voters start to believe this stuff, elected officials can campaign on it. And you get people like Michelle Bachman, like Louis Gohmert, and Rep. Steve King, all Republicans, who expound beliefs that you see first in the fever swamps of the Republican media sphere. Ideas that are utterly unfounded and dangerous, if they were acted on, end up becoming actual political priorities for the party because elected officials either believe them or have to answer to people who do. If the Russia sphere ideas become mainstream, you would have a Democratic Party where people went after the president on flimsy pretexts that embraced ideas that had no founding in empirical reality and could have unknown consequences if implemented. And the legitimate aspirations of the Democratic Party, the things that it wants to actually do, would fall by the wayside. The degradation of the Republican Party shows that this really can affect the way that a party operates. Now, Democrats don't have this problem right now, but it could happen. People have been misled And I've been afraid I've been hit in the head And left for dead I've been abused And I've been accused Anybody who knows me or this program knows that I believe two things. The first is that we absolutely need an investigation, a thorough, fair, and impartial investigation into all the questions that have been raised about Donald Trump and Russia and about Russia's possible involvement in the 2016 election. We need that for many reasons, uh, most of the primary of which is that, of course, the American people deserve answers, and right now we don't have them. So the first thing that people know is that, yes, I think we need a special prosecutor. I think we need an independent commission to look into Russia. But the second thing 
that anybody who knows this program knows is that I also think the Democrats have gone mad. And by the Democrats, I mean a series of establishment Democrats in blaming everybody but themselves for the outcome of the 2016 election. This charade has now gone into outright neo-McCarthyism on the part of the Democratic Party, and it needs to stop. Perhaps the most conspicuous evidence of this rise of Democratic fake news to complement the fake news we're getting from the Republican side is the rise of one Louise Mensch. Louise Mensch is a former romance novelist turned British member of parliament, turned conservative pundit, a would-be conservative pundit, got some funding to start a right-wing website called Heat Street, but she is now the darling of liberals because she pursues and, and spreads the wildest of conspiracy theories. She has spread hundreds of them. She has accused many people of being Russian agents. She has only been right about one thing in her uh, in her many months of doing this, and that was that there was a a, uh, invest, a FISA court uh, authorization against um, someone in the Trump administration. But all the other allegations she's made have turned out to be not only wrong, but insanely wrong. For example, uh, she has a list of suspected Russian agents. Now, if that reminds you of the original McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, it should, except that McCarthy only named some of them. She has named many people as, as absolute or probable Russian agents, and it gets absolutely absurd. There was an article about her in BuzzFeed recently. Now, this is this is not just somebody on the fringe. Louise Mensch is, uh, she had an op-ed in the New York Times. She was on the Bill Maher show. She has, um, she has been cited and quoted by top Democrats, including Donna Brazil, who was uh, at one point the head of the DNC. Now, she is uh, convinced that there are many people who she thinks are paid uh, trolls uh, and or uh, stooges or spies for the Republican Party, including Matt Taibbi, who writes for Rolling Stone. Now, in classic McCarthyite fashion, uh, Matt Taibbi got named as a possible Russian agent because he had the temerity, excuse me, to write that he thought the Russia business had gotten out of hand. Uh, Sometimes she just does that based on uh, disagreeing with her. Now, she named someone uh, named Navid Jamali, a former FBI agent. She accused him of being a Russian agent. He denies it. She did not uh, back up the allegations. A political strategist named Evan Siegfried was called a Kremlin troll by Mensch. He also has formally denied it. Uh, she has provided no evidence of that. Nevertheless, she says, if anything, the number of Russian agents she has identified has been understated. She says, although she has named 210 people, I'm quite certain the number is going to be uh, much larger. But she says she determines that someone is a Russian agent depending on either intelligence from sources, their actions, their words, such as tweets, or other primary source material. 
she provided, as we say, no evidence about whether these two, why she accused these two gentlemen of being on the Russian payroll. She has uh, said um, Kevin Rothrock, the web editor of the Moscow Times, she refers to him as Vlad, meaning that he is uh, an agent of Vladimir Putin. She did that after uh, Rothrock chided Louise Mensch for tweeting the dumbest S blank blank T. So in other words, if you cr criticize Louise Mensch, there is a very good chance she will call you a Russian spy. That is very, very similar to what uh, Joe McCarthy used to do. Now, Matt Taibbi, who I mentioned earlier, last week in an article in Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi, who, who uh, has some background in Russia, once lived and worked there, uh, wrote that we were seeing uh, a renewed case of mass hysteria against Russia among politicians and journalists. Mensch speculated that Trump that, uh, excuse me, that Taibbi, quote, might be a Russian agent. Once again, true to form, when asked why she believed that, she did not respond. She did not answer. This is absolutely classic McCarthyism, and yet Louise Mensch is a darling of many Democratic neoliberal establishment figures. Now, similarly, the flip side of this is that the same establishment figures have an extreme dislike for any journalist that reports facts they don't like. Now, I'm told that Glenn Greenwald can be abrasive, but uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that he is an excellent writer on national security issues. The latest inversion of the Louise Mensch phenomenon is that people have been taking a, a tweet from Glenn Greenwald out of context in order to claim that he doesn't like leaks when they're anti-Trump, uh, but that he likes them when they're against Obama or a Democrat. In fact, what Glenn Greenwald tweeted was, uh, about all the leaks that are hurting Trump was it's amazing how little condemnation these leaks get. I'm quoting Glenn Greenwald's Trump. Disclosure of content of intercepted calls is one of the most serious of crimes. Now, he immediately res uh, went on to say, this leak doesn't bother me very much, uh, but it's interesting how there's a double standard. That's the gist of what he went on to say. Now, all sorts of mainstream uh, democratic and national security figures immediately took the one tweet without the other uh, to accuse Greenwald of having a double standard instead. Again, we see, uh, now here's a typical example, uh, a tweet. Greenwald being against leaks now and downplaying Trump's Russia ties pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Or there is Joan Walsh, the mainstream Democratic uh, journalist, who said of Nina Turner, uh, Nina Turner, who is a great political figure, African-American woman from Ohio, supported Bernie Sanders, uh, recently commented that in the part of the country where she lives, people aren't concerned about Russia. They're concerned about how to get by in their daily lives, to which Joan, response, Joan Walsh's response was to the effect of, gee, I wonder why she's so anxious to downplay Russia. So in other words, if you say something that this branch of the Democratic Party doesn't like, they're more than willing to throw the Russia accusation against you. I don't know about you, but this 
really bothers me. This really does seem to be the use of Russia, which, by the way, is no longer our ideological enemy. Uh, the biggest problem with Putin is that he's an oligarch. He's too much like the oligarchs who run this country. And maybe that will turn out to be the connection, if there is one, between Putin and Trump. Uh, my guess... If there's a connection, it's going to be about following the money. But look, these guys are not the only ones who are spreading what I would call democratic fake news. Uh, as another article points out in Vox, which is pretty democratic friendly, so I wouldn't say this is a hostile news outlet. Uh, there was a good piece recently by Zach Beauchamp uh, pointing out that you can read stories that Trump is about to resign because of the Russian Russia scandal, that Bernie Sanders and Sean Hannity are both Russian agents, that the Russians paid, paid off House Oversight Chair Jason Chavitz, that the Chavitz, that they paid him $10 million using Trump as their go-between, that, um, that Ayn Rand, who is loved by the right, was a secret Russian agent charged with discrediting the American conservative movement. Now, to be fair, it's not true, but I, I like it, because what they're basically saying is that this hero of the American right was such an idiot, and she makes them all look like idiots. Yeah, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll embrace that one. So there's Louise Mensch, there's, there are these other outlets that, that say this crazy stuff, that Mitch McConnell funneled Russian money to Trump. Look, let's put it this way. If there's no evidence whatsoever to back something up, and if it sounds crazy, it's fake news. Now, could it become real news? Sure it could, absolutely, once there's evidence. But if there's no evidence and you're repeating it, especially if you're repeating it, A, to defend your political candidate and your political point of view, and B, to slander and smear people with whom you disagree politically, and especially I'm thinking of centrist Democrats attacking the left this way, you are spreading fake news. You are no better than Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. That is the sum total of it. At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. I think that it's a big mistake. I think that if the Democratic Party is going to put all its bets on Russia bashing, that that's that's something that I mean, you can you can scare Americans. Uh, you know, uh, we did that with Saddam Hussein. Uh, we ended up with an awful war. If you want to do Russia bashing, we could end up with a far more awful war. Uh, you know, Russia is a, a they've got seven, eight thousand nuclear weapons. Um, 
This is the point that, you know, the guy who, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but the, the publisher, the editor of uh, The New Yorker, you know, he's got his entire issue right. is devoted to that this year, this uh, this week. And the day before yesterday, or maybe the day before that, he was on uh, Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC, and he basically said, you know, uh, yeah, the Russians hated Hillary Clinton um, and, and Bill Clinton, and there's a very clear reason why. When the Soviet Union was dissolving uh, during the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush and the tail end of Reagan's, uh, Gorbachev made a deal with both Reagan and Bush Sr. that uh, he would dissolve the Soviet Union and let these countries go, let Poland and Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and, and uh, Ukraine and just let them go in exchange for an assurance from the United States that NATO would, would not be established in any of these countries that were contiguous with the Russian border. Much like we said back in 1963 to Russia, you may not put your nuclear weapons in Cuba, which is 90 miles off our shore. So that was the deal. And Bill Clinton broke that deal. And that has been a thorn in the side of the Russians ever since. And so, uh, you know, I, I agree with his consensus that, you know, to the extent that uh, Russians might have been, you know, or the Russian government, for that matter, might have been trying to... Uh, you know, take a nick out of Hillary Clinton, that it was it was for that reason. They didn't see her as 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 a person that would work with them, given what her husband had done and, and given her own rhetoric. And, uh, you know, whether that's a, a, a true interpretation or not, I believe that that is their interpretation. And, and 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 that's really weak stuff to take down the Republican Party with. I think that that the Democrats are making a huge mistake by not pointing out that the Republicans that, uh, and this should be hammered. I mean, if the Democrats had done anything close to this outrageous, the Republicans would be hammering on it. That the first thing that Donald Trump did was make it harder for average working people to buy a home by increasing the profits of banksters. The second thing he did was make it easier for coal companies to poison tens of millions of people downstream from coal, coal mines by uh, allowing coal miners, uh, coal mines to, you know, mountaintop coal mine removal to dump their crap, to dump their waste, their poison, their mercury-laden, chromium-laden, lead-laden, radioactive-laden waste into our streams. He blew up the U.S. streams rule. Uh, you know, that, that he's stacked his cabinet with, with he's got, uh, what, four Goldman Sachs people in his cabinet and three other Goldman Sachs people, his close advisors, including Steve Bannon. He's got a you know, uh, you know, you, the guy who used to be who used to run Goldman Sachs is his chief economic advisor. He's he's running us down the road toward oligarchy and, and kleptocracy. And nobody's talking about these things. And these are the things that actually win elections. Americans don't you know, it's not going to motivate Americans to go to the polls thinking that Donald Trump might, you know, be favorable to Putin or Russia. That's not going to get people out of their houses and down to the polls, um, you know, one way or the other, frankly. But knowing that, that Trump and the Republicans are going to take away your health insurance, knowing that they want to take away your Social Security, knowing that they want to poison your children and you, uh, that you know, all in the name of profits to the industries that own them, that's the stuff that wins elections. And it concerns me, frankly. And, and uh, you know, I find myself in a, uh, a somewhat difficult position saying this. You know, uh, but I, I just, you know, it's it really concerns me that the Democratic Party is putting all their chips on this one, you know, on this on this one, you know, 28 on the on the on the on the uh, roulette wheel, you know, of Russia, 
when they really should be distributing their chips on, you know, he's destroying working people. He's destroying our air. He's destroying our water. He's he wants to give away Western lands to the to the uh, to the to the drillers and the polluters. He wants to. I mean, there's so many things that Trump has already done that are that are outrageous and they're getting no coverage at all because because this 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 Russia thing is just consuming everything. Trump does not bring out the best in the people he appeals to, but he also does not bring out the best in his enemies. Uh, I don't think anything in American politics is psychologically healthy right now, and I don't think uh, Trump opposition is trending in psychologically healthy directions. And and this brings us back to to that this final piece of the the Trump Russia stuff, which is the ways in which liberals want to believe the worst version of it's true because it offers them uh, a deus ex machina that they're not going to get otherwise. And, and you wrote this very eloquently. You wrote, for more than six months now, Russia has served as a crutch for the American imagination. It used to explain how Trump could have happened to us, and it is also called upon to give us hope. When the Russian conspiracy behind Trump is finally fully exposed, our national nightmare will be over. And this is spun off on the left into a real sort of Russia conspiracy sphere. Um, my, my colleague Zach Beecham has done really great work on this, but really wild ideas are getting circulated by, you know, people who either were not considered credible a year ago and are, you know, because they're so congenial being considered credible and they're being amplified by people who just want to believe them. And I'm curious how you see the danger of that. You have been, I think, in your writing very disturbed by this trend. And I think one version of looking at it is say, ah, you know, these are just people on Twitter going a little bit too far. But you think there's something that is more toxic here. And I, I'd like to hear how you think about it. Yeah, I'm really glad you've, you've come back to this um, because as I was thinking about this when we were talking about sort of the possible scenarios and uh, and the, the, the sort of the almost best case scenario, which is that Trump – is just plagued and uh, and largely paralyzed by these um, allegations till the end of his first term, and then uh, and then doesn't win re-election in part because he's been so tainted by the Russia story. And that all sounds well and good until you stop to consider what kind of political culture we enter the post-Trump era with. I think it's impossible to underestimate how destructive Trump is to. Uh, to American politics, to American political institutions, but even more to culture and to language and to the way we talk about politics. I think that a lot of Americans are not finally attuned to this because, and this is, this is another area in which I think, you know, having lived in autocracy, uh, give, gives me a kind of, um, leg up because I've also lived sort of through a failed recovery from an autocracy. And I know what that looks like. Um, and when when people are sort of breathing a sigh of relief, I think around the hundred day mark, saying, "Oh well, he hasn't accomplished anything legislatively; it's all going to be okay." That's not what I would have been taking stock of. I would have been taking stock of what's happened to language, what's happened to to political thought, what's happened to political debate. 
And some of the things that have happened certainly to journalism have been amazing, right? But some things have been really disturbing, like the proliferation of conspiracy theories on the left, like I think a larger mood of uh, of smearing politicians uh, with uh, with the Russia brush. That's that taps into you know, long time American political tradition, but there's nothing great about tapping into that tradition. Um, there's nothing great in trafficking in that kind of political conversation. And it also doesn't move the anti-Trumpers in any direction except the anti-Trump direction, right? That's not enough to move on after Trump. There's no vision for what America can be if it's not run by President Trump. Where's the Democratic Party? Where are Democratic politicians? Where is the glorious future that they're going to bring us in place of the imaginary past that Trump has been promoting? None of that is there. None of it, as far as I know, is even being discussed because everybody is talking about how to get rid of this guy and how to use the Russia story to get rid of this guy more specifically. So one of the things that that I wonder about there is that on the one hand, I think to, to your point about where are the Democrats at the moment, I think the fact of being powerless and not having a campaign to focus attention just sort of – it almost doesn't matter what they do, right? I think they can say things about Russia. I think they can say things about healthcare, care, uh, and, and it doesn't matter that much. Um, but the place where what you say really resonates with me is Republicans engaged in – this kind of conspiracy theorizing from much more powerful sources in their party and with much more indulgence from their elected officials during the Obama era. Um, Trump himself was the prime progenitor, uh, an advocate of the birther conspiracy. And as it, as it took root in the Republican party and as elected officials decided not to believe it, but to let it stand, to try to signal they're on the same side, even if they weren't going to follow up on it, it began exerting a sort of gravitational pull. And by 2016, you did have Republicans who were running on all kinds of visions for the country. Mark Rubio had some very interesting speeches about what he wanted to do on, on college and other things. But it was Trump who represented where the base had really moved to. And it was Trump who they were convinced, you know, would fight for them, would lock Hillary Clinton up in jail would build the wall, would do would do all these things that, that fit what had become their mindset and would become their core set of concerns. I don't think that's happening in the Democratic Party yet, but we're, whatever it is, 135 days into Trump or something. And this is a long time for people to be this angry and this scared. And the sort of rise of a conspiracy sphere has happened faster than I would have thought it would. Um, there's been, I think, a little bit more quick pushback. But if the liberal base is persuaded of that, then it sort of won't matter because, you know, there's one issue of are Democrats talking about other things, but there's the other issue of does their base want them to talk about other things? I think right now, more or less, they do. But if it became that they didn't, if it became the litmus test was believing, you know, that Trump had to be impeached over sins that as of yet were unclear, although I, I think the obstruction of justice is very real even now. Um, but if, it, if the litmus has became believing in the wilder versions of the Russian conspiracy, uh, that may, that, that would go in a bad direction. I agree. Um, and you know, I'm not talking about how the Democrats aren't talking about important legislation. I'm talking about something much bigger, which is, as I said, it's a vision of the future, right? I think that 
what ultimately made Trump so appealing was not just the conspiracy theories, I think, although I think you're right to point to them. It was his appeal to an imaginary past, right, to a time that none of us actually lived through and none of us remember, but we imagined that we felt comfortable in or they imagined that they felt comfortable in a simpler time. And um, meanwhile, the Democrats were you – know, the, 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 the Clinton campaign was saying, no, things are just fine the way they are. Uh, which is not actually the way you fight an, an imaginary past. The way you can fight an imaginary past is through a vision, through, uh, and, and it has to be a vision of, of, of a glorious future. Or as, as historian Tim Snyder has put it, uh, it, if you're going to fight you know, somebody who makes up fictions and conspiracy theories, you have to be interesting, right? So legislation is not terribly interesting. But there has Breaking to be heart, an interesting Marcia. story. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you. I'm saying this to the wrong person. For a lot of people, legislation is not terribly interesting. I think it's fascinating. But um, um, but you have to tell stories, right? Not you know, not stories about how we took stock and uh, and we realized that um, that things are pretty good, uh, which is sort of what the Clinton campaign was doing. But like. Amazing, imaginative, engaging stories that people can buy into. And conspiracy theories work that way, right? You can totally buy into a conspiracy theory and you immediately have community and you immediately have things to talk to people about. You immediately have ways to engage your imagination. But that is just deadly to to the public sphere and, you know, I think to the fabric of society. I think it's pretty clear at this point that regardless of if you think he did a big deal or whatever, uh, considering both the circumstances under which Comey was fired and him openly admitting it, he, he should be impeached. It should be done. And I know some people will say, well, that will result in an even worse thing because then Pence will become president. And that may well be true. But you don't decide whether to impeach a president based on whether politically it might or might not benefit you. You do it if they've committed the crimes that necessitate impeachment. And I believe that he has in this case. I think the only reason that more people aren't calling for that is because Donald Trump has so radically shifted our expectations of what's normal and acceptable in government that, I don't know, we feel awkward about talking about it. But you cannot eliminate an investigation like this. And I know some people, even watching the show right now, will say, you know what, I don't think that this Russia thing is so serious. I don't really care if they shut down this investigation. But I understand that even you, there's other things you're worried about, that there could be corruption in the White House, all sorts of things like that. And if you think that when he gets away with eliminating the Russia investigation effectively, that there's going to be legitimate investigations into corruption, into you know, dealings with foreign countries, all that. I mean, come on, you have to draw the line somewhere. And if, if people lay down on this, then they are saying future corruption by the White House, 100% acceptable. We will accept that. And here's, here's, I think you make a really great point, John, and it also is, necessitates the need to move quickly because when he goes, assuming that Cenk is right, and I, I largely share that belief that he can't possibly survive four years. When he goes and Mike Pence comes in, for all the problems that Mike Pence has, there is a 
A, Mike Pence would not behave in this manner. No one's going to question Mike Pence's mental stability. We might disagree vehemently of every single policy. But uh, there will be, because of our instincts to do this as human beings and as Americans, like I hear it from all my friends. Hey, it's not that bad. The Congress will step up. Ben Sass and Jeff Flake will save us. Literally on a phone call with my best friend yesterday. Ben Sass and Jeff Flake will save us. Right? <laughs> so, um, the, uh, uh, but Mike Pence will represent the un-Trump. And that will seem like a return to normalcy. Right? And that runs the enormous risk that because Pence will operate in a way that is not insane, the press secretary will say things that are largely true about the Pence policies that we hate. And Mike Pence will be put in a moderately strong position to win election and serve six and a half years or maybe for crying out loud, depending on when it happens, 10 years as president of the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So think about that. Well, John. So, so we just real quick, we what we need is to get to this part where we accept the normalcy of Mike Pence and then get beyond it to show the radicalism yeah. of Mike Pence if we're going to yeah. have any effort to win this thing back. The other point that I want to speak to what you said, and this is why Trump does this, he, no one stopped him up until now. You That's know right. what I mean? Like when you say that there are people watching who say that the Russia investigation doesn't matter. Remember, this is the guy who said, I can kill, so I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my supporters will let it go. So far, that's been proven true. He had, like, with all the things he's done, every time we've been outraged or, or he's, you know, just ignored the Constitution or, or whatever else, he's gotten away with it. Yeah. Maybe the policy didn't go through, but there was no backlash against him. So this, as much as, as ridiculous as it sounds, mm. his followers could just back, you know what I mean? Like there could I think you're be exactly. no penalty for this. Then they put in some clown to run the FBI, who they, who him and Sessions completely yep. control, and the investigation goes away. And there's there's still that big following that's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, look, I think you're you're already right. You may not have seen the poll, but you're totally right. Uh, this is yet another one of the issues where polls show uh, the firing of Comey. His supporters don't care. They largely are not bothered by it, mostly don't think it's uh, unacceptable. The numbers are a little bit closer than on some other things. Um, and so some people very often on any of these issues, they'll say, this isn't something you can convince Donald Trump voters on, so why are you wasting your time on? You can't win an election on this, so why are you wasting your time? Because the commentary we do, our jobs is not just about political partisan bullshit. It's about what's right and what's true and making sure that as many people as possible understand that. What wins an election is great and we'll get to that, but at some point you have to have values, you have to stand by them and you cannot stand by as this sort of corruption and obstruction of justice is taking place in the White House. Don't worry about the guys who are saying that. The guys who have said all along that there's no Russia thing and it's hyperventilating, some who work here, right? You're a hundred percent wrong, and you're going to be proven wrong. And so, sad day for you. I don't even want to discuss it anymore. You know, okay. And there's a there's <laughs> some of what I think inspires those people is not is 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 makes some sense, which is and it's another reason to hurry. So let's get this, let's get beyond it, so that come 2018, they're right that the only thing Democrats are talking about is Russia. That would be a mistake. Right there. Oh, definitely. That, that's, that's, definitely. that's critical. Yeah. And so the notion that we need to get beyond that so we start talking about things that matter and affect people's lives. But that said, this has to be gotten yeah. beyond.
Today, we heard clips starting with Intercepted attempting to answer the question, Manchurian candidate or useful idiot. Next, Ezra Klein put forward his theory on how Trump fumbled into political ties with Russia. Democracy Now! spoke with Noam Chomsky about the historical context of the U.S. and Russia tampering with elections. The Majority Report discussed Comey's testimony about his confidence in the conclusion that Russia did, in fact, attempt to interfere with the U.S. election. On the Media attempted to explain why liberals are now falling for fake news about Russia. The Zero Hour stressed the need to support a thorough investigation into Russia while not allowing it to consume us or lead us to believe in conspiracy theories. The Tom Hartman program made the political argument for why the Democrats shouldn't focus so exclusively on Russia. Masha Gessen talked on The Ezra Klein Show about how the left has fallen into the Russia conspiracy sphere. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks discuss both the political and apolitical reasons to pursue the Russia investigation and have it done with. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's uh, Stephen from the People's Caliphate of Birmingham in the UK again. I run up uh, before just after Trump's election, but this time I'm ringing up about um, progressive left causes. Uh, obviously, in the UK, we just had a general election. And I just wanted to talk about that in light of the program you just ran, I think the second and last one, about taking back control of the Democratic Party. So I'm talking from us taking back control of the Labour Party. So I was listening to the guy in Team Liberal, and some of the, the guy who wrote that is on the, um, uh, the latest episode. And he and some of the things he was talking about about Democrats were eerily spooky, and how they correlated perfectly with what the Labour Party was telling us about Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is essentially a historical mistake. I'm sure you're aware of it, but for any listeners, he was never meant to be there. There was all big fancy firewalls. Essentially, what happened was the Ed Miliband, who was the Labour Party leader before him, was being attacked by David Cameron, the former Prime Minister, from the Conservative side, of saying that you were being controlled by the unions. So what they did to counter this was to get, make one member one vote. When uh, uh, Miliband had to resign, or resigned, after losing the general election before this, he essentially, uh, there was a contest. Jeremy Corbyn was 200 to one outsider. People like me, who are progressive, suddenly realised we could pay £3, or it was a couple of dollars, uh, to vote for him. So we did. Now, they, they were so concerned, the Labour Party of the right, it's like they wanted to use a boxing analogy, they, they were so concerned about the right, they forgot about the left. And so what essentially happened is, when people got the option to vote for a progressive left-wing candidate, or a traditional left-wing candidate, socialist candidate, in our political system, they took it. So essentially, they were worried about the right, they forgot about the left, and bang, the left hook came in, dropped them. They got up, after Brexit, they, the right wing of the party, the Democratic establishment side, cooed again. 80% of the MPs said there was a vote of no confidence in Corbyn. They had to do a new leadership campaign, and essentially people like me and lots of other people joined the party, and fought for him again, delivered him an increased mandate. So again, it's like the, the, the fighter got up, he carried on, and thought it was a fluke, he dropped him again, the left dropped him again. Now we just had a general election, essentially what's happened this time is the establishment wing of the Labour Party has been completely knocked out. They said he could never win, he could never win seats, he was a disaster. 
he would be the electoral wipeout if he ever got to a general election. We've proved them completely wrong. And Jeremy Corbyn has created, I mean, I don't know if you're watching what's happening over here, but it's just unbelievable. It's a seismic shock. The right now, the big champion of the right wing, which is the Conservative Party over here, is absolutely petrified that if they go for another general election, Jeremy Corbyn would win it. And they're absolutely petrified. So the reason why I'm leaning to to American politics is for all you people fighting for control of the Democratic Party, hold your nerve. You will be rain blows and told, told that you're stupid, you don't understand, and like the guy who was saying in there, listen, liberal, shaking your head that you don't quite get it, because they cling to this orthodoxy. We just proved over here, the Labour Party just proved under Jeremy Corbyn, that orthodoxy is shot, broken, and is a basically a model. We call it Blairist model. You call it a Clintonite modern model. That is shot to bits. It was fit for purpose once upon a time, maybe in the 90s, it's no longer applicable and we're in a new reality. So really I'm just ringing up to say, all you guys in the Democratic Party are fighting for control, hold your nerve, keep your fight, and sunny uplands in this uh, part of the world, and I wish all our American cousins well. Thanks very much, Jay. Really love the show. I've been spreading the word, and uh, it's like a virus. Once people hear your show, they... You can't get off it, they're hooked, and people are uh, infected by it, and loads of people I know now listen to it. We love what you do, uh, and good luck, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today was a big, huge show, so I'm not going to add too much more here at the end, uh, other than to say, in addition to whatever comments you would like to leave, uh, you know, I'd love to hear those. But specifically... I would love any thoughts you have on the state of the left. You know, comments ranging everything from, you know, hey, why are we even saying that we need to fix anything because Hillary did technically get more votes anyway, so obviously there's nothing really wrong, all the way to the other end of, like, why don't we talk more about the draft Bernie movement? That's obviously the direction we need to go. That I mean, that's as wide of a range of thought as I can think of, it probably goes wider than that, and there's a whole lot of gray area in between. Uh, So call in, share your thoughts uh, on uh, where you think we should go, where you think things are, uh, what we should be emphasizing, anything along those lines. I'd I'd love to hear it. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Maybe start by telling podcast newbies that there's an easy-to-use, best-of-the-left smartphone app out there to get them started. Also, please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and 
Patreon all of the great content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. See